Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation's 2020 Anti-Poverty Forum. We're thrilled to have you here. Here's some tips for making the most of your virtual experience with us. Throughout our virtual forum, you can access program information and resources on the same website through which you, you registered. We'll send that link to you through the chat box. If you'd like to submit questions, and we hope you do, please do so via the questions tab. Feel free to share your name and affiliation so we learn a little bit about who's joining us today. Last and not least, if there are any minor technical issues, we ask for your patience as many of us are working from home and using home internet. I now invite Jennifer Marshall, the Heritage Foundation's Senior Visiting Fellow in Domestic Policy Studies to come on screen. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon and thank you for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. My name is Jennifer Marshall and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the 2020 Heritage Anti-Poverty Forum. This is an annual event that brings together leaders at the community, state, and federal levels who are working to help more of our neighbors overcome poverty and social challenges. It's a forum where policymakers and practitioners working directly with those in need can gather around the shared goal of effective compassion. This year, our focus is on reconnecting community. 2020 has certainly been a year of social distancing and strife, and that's left many people feeling more than just physically remote from their neighbors. So this program will highlight some wonderful work that has been going on across our country for some time now and has a track record of reconnecting community. For our first panel today, I'm very pleased to be able to introduce two friends of mine, John Ponder and Evan Feinberg. And I'd like to invite John and Evan to turn on their webcams as I introduce them. John Ponder is founder and CEO of Hope for Prisoners in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's a ministry that's very local and personal, but a model that is having national impact. In fact, it's even drawn the attention of the President of the United States, who spoke at the Hope for Prisoners graduation in February. Welcome, John. So great to have you with us. I am so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And Evan Feinberg is executive director of the Stand Together Foundation, which is a philanthropic effort to identify and promote social entrepreneurs, helping people overcome persistent poverty. He's also an alumnus of the Heritage Foundation. So we're so glad to welcome you back, Evan. Great to be with you. Well, John and Evan, so good to see you. And we're just going to have a conversation here that makes it possible to highlight your good work. Uh, first, I'd like to begin with you, John, and just ask you to tell us a little bit about Hope for Prisoners. What it's a, it's a ministry involving mentoring and reconciliation, and what's made it successful? How has this ministry worked? Well, well thank you for the op opportunity. You know, Hope for Prisoners, we provide reentry services to men, women, and young adults that are exiting different arenas of our judicial system to help them to successfully reintegrate back into their home, back into the workplace. And ultimately, our goal is to help them to be stand up leaders in the community with a focus on them never, ever, ever reoffending again. 
So we, uh, our success has come from uh, doing extensive training that might be vocational training to soft skills training. Uh, and a key to our success is working with men and women up to 18 months prior to them being released so we can make sure that we're providing them with the tools that help them to be successful the minute that they get released back into our community. Uh, one of the uniquenesses is that uh, once they get back in the community, uh, we just don't release them in the community by themselves. We stay with them for up to 18 months uh, to help them to navigate the different challenges they're going to be facing. Do we do that through additional leadership training, vocational training, intensive case management? And one of the cornerstones of our success is, a, is our mentoring program where we've trained up well over 500 men and women from our community uh, that serve as mentors to help them to uh, get to where they want to get in life. One of the chief cornerstones that we have in the uniqueness is that, uh, you know, over 125 men and women from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department uh, serve as mentors. And never before in the history of reentry to this magnitude has law enforcement gotten this involved in mentoring and, tra and training men and women that are returning uh, to our community. And Jennifer, that has caused such a win-win on both sides of the equation. We are so thankful for that. And I want to ask you how COVID impacted you this year. What did it force you to do? What did you discover? Yeah, so so COVID hit us hard, just like every everyone else. The minute that you know our uh, you know our governor shut everything down and everything was closed, a lot of the folks that we were working with that were being successful, uh, you know, they they became unemployed, and we have to try to come up with creative ways to you know stay connected with them and provide substance abuse treatment and other services that we uh, needed to provide for them. So we had to to you know continuously pivot. Uh, one of the things that we did that uh, has uh, proven to be very successful is that we launched a distance learning uh, program inside our, our, our DOC facilities. And that had given us the ability to stay connected with them to continue vocational training, to continue the substance abuse treatment, give them an opportunity to be able to connect with their case managers and still continuing in that mentoring uh, mentoring relationship. So um, it's, you know, we, we had to obviously close our doors, but because we're an essential business, uh, we have to stay connected because we're dealing with human life. So although I sent, you know, the 23 folks, my staff um, at home, uh, they work from home, still staying in connectivity uh, with our clients, making sure that they have the, the support that they needed. We're so grateful for that. Well, Evan, I want to draw you into this conversation, but stay on the theme of COVID because one of your big initiatives this year was the Give Together Now campaign. And can you tell us a little bit about how that worked? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the Give Together Now campaign was a particularly exciting effort, but to tell the story, I probably need to go back uh, to tell the story of Stand Together Foundation and what we're working on. So Stand Together is a philanthropic community originally founded and, and it's now led, of course, by Charles Koch and hundreds of the most successful business leaders from around the country who have a, a vision to stand together to help every person rise. And really, what are those conditions of human flourishing? Well, our work in communities through Stand Together Foundation is particularly how do we bring people together in common cause to break the cycle of poverty in America? And so it's a pretty big and lofty vision. It means we first have to ask what's, what's wrong with the way that people are approaching poverty today? And we think the problem is that people think of those in poverty as broken and deficient and in need of outside top-down expert help. And so that leads us down the sort of war on poverty thinking that really just traps people in further poverty, 
creates control, dependency, and doesn't ultimately help people to tap into their gifts and talents and contribute. It makes poverty easier to endure, but harder to escape. But unfortunately, the, the, the choice has been a false one between that and sort of a do nothing, pick yourselves up by your bootstraps approach to poverty. Instead, we think if people are capable of extraordinary things and they're not currently contributing up to their potential, that's ultimately an innovation problem. We need social entrepreneurs that can help people to be resilient, to tap into their gifts, to, to be their best self. So we've been scouring the country to find the very best social entrepreneurs that can handle really big challenges with innovative, successful approaches to transform people's lives, help people to transform their own lives, really. And so one of those groups, of course, is John Ponder and Hope for Prisoners, and they're doing incredible work, and we're so proud to be partnering with John and his team and the work that they're doing. But we've vetted thousands of organizations around the country. We're working with 180 different groups. We add somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 60 new organizations to what we call our Catalyst Network each year. And one of those organizations is a group called Family Independence Initiative that uh, really uh, innovates around existing philanthropic models to provide direct cash assistance and social capital support to families in poverty um, with no program. They're just helping folks to, in, to invest in their own initiatives in their lives. Well, because of that, they had a direct uh, cash transfer capability. And when COVID hit, it was literally March 16th, it was before my office even shut down, that I got a call from Jesus Serena, the CEO of Family Independence Initiative. He said, I got this crazy idea. I think we could raise as much as $10 million to help 20,000 families experiencing hardship, just a bridge to their own stability, right? 500 bucks isn't gonna solve their problems, but it could invest in whatever their resilient ways of handling the crisis might be. And I said, that sounds great, but you know, $10 million, we should try to do a whole lot more. Um, and I, we, we didn't tell anyone else, but we set a secret goal of what if we could raise $100 million to help 200,000 families uh, ex experiencing hardship to bridge to, to where they were gonna be. Um, we hit $100 million uh, around August uh, of this year. Um, we were super proud to be able to help uh, a, a ton of families to invest in their own strategies to get themselves out of poverty. Over 120 of the groups in our Catalyst Network helped us to find and vet the families that needed those resources and could bridge their, to their prosperity. Um, it was just a really exciting movement from the bottom up in communities of people helping people. Uh, there was a give kindness component where people were uh, cataloging random acts of kindness for one another and how they were helping people through. And one of the coolest parts about the give kindness effort as part of it was that folks that were on the recipient end of the resources were our most active folks in helping others to overcome their challenges. So it's a, a big and fun and exciting uh, and we, we hope impactful project this year. That's great. And a nice illustration, your last point there about reconnecting community as you gave, others gave as well. Well, John, back to you, because you and your organization have been in the spotlight quite a bit this year, and I'm wondering how that has led, if it's led, to efforts at replicating or people taking uh, advice and counsel from you about how to start something similar in their communities, or is law enforcement reaching out? And if so, if people are reaching out like this, what is it they're, they're looking for and why are they looking to you? Sure, and, and if I may, I'd just like to give a public thank you to stand together because we were on Hope for Prisoners on the receiving end of the benefits of the, the Give Now, and I, I have to tell you that, the, you know, that uh, that $500 came right on time, 
picture, if you will, everything shut down, uh, folks are losing jobs, uh, people are having to move back home in with relatives and unemployment was lagging. And that $500 came right on time. And you heard the stories of folks able to, uh, you know, purchase as asthma medication. Uh, be able to just get the basic needs like toilet paper. We even have one person who uh, his father passed away. It wasn't COVID related, but he used that $500 towards helping his, uh, you know, preparing a, a funeral service for, for his dad. So it, it came right on time. Um, so we're very grateful for stand, to stand together for that. So uh, yes, over the past uh, you know six months, we have been thrust into the national spotlight because of the success and the model and way that we do work, particularly centered around uh, our work with the uh, men and women from law enforcement. Uh, and uh, we have had folks from all across the country in different jurisdictions uh, having conversations with us because if you look at the disruptions that have taken place in the communities across our country where law enforcement is concerned, uh, you know, we believe that we do have the solution for that, helping people from this segment of the population build up relationships with the men and women for law enforcement. So we have been just honored to have been contacted by police departments all over the country uh, and looking for us to replicate that model uh, in their jurisdiction. That's great. John, of course, your own background is part of your story for getting involved here. Can you share a little bit about that? And have you seen others who are graduates of your program going on to be mentors and taking leadership themselves? Oh, absolutely. You know, Hope for Prisons was birthed out of my own personal experiences. I was a guy who was coming in out of the system, uh, which seems like you know a lifetime. And I remember one day, Jennifer, I stood in the prison cell and I had a conversation with God and asked him to turn my life around. And 100 uh, percent, I know that God did. So in that, turning right back around and helping other men and women to realize their own redemption uh, and help them to navigate the different challenges they're going to be facing during that reintegration process and then be able to to raise them up, to help them to walk into their own redemptive lives, to turn right back around and help other men and women that are uh, that are about to embark on the same journey that they're uh, about to go on. So, Well, Evan, I imagine those are some of the same themes that you're looking at as you try to network social entrepreneurs across the country. But can you give us a little more insight as to what the characteristics of leaders you're looking for? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're looking for social entrepreneurs, which means people who are taking innovative and disruptive approaches to solving problems that they have better knowledge about how to solve those problems than others that have been trying in vain often to try to solve these really difficult and intractable problems. Well, folks like John who've experienced the problem are uh, have this unique personal knowledge and capability to reach into the lives of others and help them to transform their lives. And so over and over again, we found that those closest to the problem are more effective than others that are far away. And, you know, often the, the name of the game in the social sector looks nothing like we see in, for example, in the private sector, in the business sector, where entrepreneurs are rewarded for having sort of a unique approach. Instead, you know, philanthropists and nonprofits are trying to fund those that follow some cookie cutter, evidence-based best, best practice cooked up in some, you know, ivory tower or some uh, bureaucratic meeting room. And instead, it's those folks out there doing the work that have personal knowledge that are having some success need investment and have their efforts grow. And so what we do is we offer management training and support and help those folks like John who are having an incredible amount of success compared to others. And we help the helpers to do more. That's 
to us, a far more successful approach and far more scalable as we hope to change paradigms in the social sector to have resources flowing to where value is created rather than where there's compliance with some evidence-based best practice. So Evan, as we're standing at the end of one year and looking into 2021, what is it that you think is going to be necessary to see, uh, uh, to expand this kind of work and multiply the kinds of efforts on the ground that you're seeing? Yeah, well, we're in a, a moment as a country. Uh, certainly COVID has been this massive disruption. It's hit those in poverty the hardest. Uh, as, as far as sort of crises go, this one's been a uniquely devastating one to those that were already experiencing poverty. The issues around racial justice in this country uh, are significant and of significant concern to individuals and communities, and we're as divided as ever. We're coming out of an election season where everyone's been, in my opinion, very falsely putting their hopes in who wins a national election as the, as the source and solution to our problems, and it's created a level of tribalism, um, and frankly, it's undermined the very institutions of democracy, to, to get poetic for a second, that I'm, I'm sort of a Tocquevillian follower, Alexis de Tocqueville, and I, I think what makes America great uh, is not to be found in the halls of Congress or state legislatures. What makes America great is the social fabric of our country. And that social fabric is woven together, we use together in our name, because of the mutual benefit of people helping people. This radical idea that all people are created equal and therefore have something to contribute and therefore demands, yes, the protection of their rights by government, but really demands each and every one of our respect for their dignity, their capabilities, what they have to offer. And, you know, when your focus is on what the rules of the game are rather than how do we unlock the potential of our neighbors, we're never going to be successful together. It'll always be a tribal war of who wins. Um, I think if we're going to move forward as a country together, we need to go find more John Ponders. We need to go find more family independence initiatives. We need to find more Scott Strodes from the Phoenix, someone who was in, struggling with addiction, started a group to do peer-to-peer -peer physical fitness recovery for addiction, and is now reaching tens of thousands of people each year and hopefully soon to be as many as a million people each year experiencing addiction with an approach that taps into human resiliency helps people to help one another, um, and starts to believe in, in people again. You know, um, we're led by Charles Koch. He and my boss, Brian Hooks, that stand together, just released a book this week that I think everyone should take a look at. It's called Believe in People, Bottom-Up Solutions for a Top-Down World. I think that if we're going to get through this together as a country right now, we need to start believing in people once again. Very good. Thank you. Well, John, let me ask you to reflect on that as well. The, and we're having some questions come in from our audience. I invite others to um, submit questions as well. The, the, the fact that your work is so personal, so local, uh, and yet uh, we also want to see it, it uh, take root elsewhere. How do you think about that? Are you looking for peers to be leaders in those communities? How do you think about the local versus the aspect of trying to spread this work? 
Absolutely. We always seek out uh, the peers. We know that even in the conversations that we've been having with the different communities across the country, uh, we need to find those social entrepreneurs, as Evan was describing, uh, who be able to take the reins with it and, um, you know, and, and be able to run with it. You know, our model being exported someone else, somewhere else, We it's not a cookie cutter approach. We know we, know we could take some, a lot of the principles that we have, but then they need to be custom fit inside that area. So you must find those social entrepreneurs and then those collaborating partners um, such as we have built up here uh, inside the state of Nevada to, in order to be able to, you know, to scale that, that is something that is very much needed. I've got a question here from our audience uh, listening in from a college campus asking about advice for young people entering the workforce and how they could be best prepared to think about fighting poverty. How could they take part? How, do, how should they think about preparing themselves for that? No, Can I ask you that first, Evan? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that the that that uh, everyone wants to start. I, you know, I, I came out of college. I, I had a, this wonderful internship, interning for Jen at the Heritage Foundation, um, and then my first job was working on these issues um, at the Heritage Foundation, coming out of school. And and I, I think I learned a lot during that process. I, I wanted to come out out of uh, uh, college and change the world right away. And so my focus was on public policy alone and uh, and saying, hey, we just need you know members of Congress to make different decisions and we're gonna solve poverty. Now, I, I, I have a, a much broader point of view. Jennifer helped me to, to develop this point of view for sure, that it's really not just about the rules, it's about the principles and values. And if we want to solve poverty, we all need to internalize a different set of principles about what we believe about people and their capabilities and the benefit to all of us when each and every person taps into their gifts and talents and contributes, how we're all better off as a result. And so my, my advice uh, to someone coming out of school would be to look inwardly first. What can I do differently? How can I think differently? How can I form my own mental models and frameworks to do this work? Um, if I'm gonna spend time volunteering or anything, how do I only do it in such a way that will empower people rather than control uh, or help them in that way? And then of course, if, uh, if it's a college student, we've got, we need lots more talent in social entrepreneurial organizations. So nonprofits that are doing this work that are making a difference. Uh, so please look me up because we got lots of, lots of talent needs. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. And we will be listing your contact information after this uh, on a slide. So, so guests will be able to get in touch with you. And we do, we, we hold this uh, forum each year because we do want to recruit more people to the cause of thinking about effective compassion. And of course, effective compassion is concerned uh, not just with the effort, but with the results. And is, is our effort really reaping the results that help people and lift them up? John, let me ask you about what you'd like to see and what advice you'd give to a young person who wants to make a difference on these kind of issues. Yeah, so I would uh, first like to encourage them to, uh, and I think Evan hit on this, uh, take a look on the inside. What is it that makes your heart tick? You know, a lot of times we see people entering into the workforce and and and, and going after the dollar amount and, or chasing the money. But I always encourage people to to say, you know, what would I do for a living if, and I would do it for absolutely nothing, right? It's that thing that's in the meditation of your heart. And I think that when you find your your heart's passion, I believe that's when you're really going to find your your life's work. Excellent, great advice. 
I hope many people will hear that. Um, I've got another question from the audience, and it has to do with the academic community. And Evan, let me direct this to you, because it's specifically asking, how could the academic community play a role in empowering social entrepreneurs addressing issues of poverty? What kinds of academic work is needed in this field? Yeah, it's a great question. If, if I am a policymaker contemplating changes in tax policy, I have a wealth of academics and researchers and think tank um, experts who can help me understand the changes in tax rates and, and whatnot and what it'll mean for economic growth. If I'm doing work in the social sector, the only thing that I see is sort of these high stakes random control studies that lay out the value of one intervention versus another. There's not an ecosystem of folks thinking about, talking about, highlighting what's working and not working with individual organizations and individual approaches in a dynamic way. And so I, I think that sort of just getting the, the best and brightest minds to, to not only think about public policy decisions, but also the sort of dynamic social sector and researching and writing and analyzing what's happening within it. The other thing that I think is an urgent need is, is social impact measurement. Uh, you know, the, a lot of very progressive top-down um, think tanks and, and academic institutions and foundations have focused on measures of poverty that, that really encourage a, a bureaucratic or a top-down approach. They look at macro level proxies for um, that you know sort of a, a funder might be interested in, but don't really help anyone to know whether you're actually helping people to live better lives. And so they might look at a proxy like high school graduation rates or even third grade literacy rates, which are useful measures but they don't really get at whether people are transforming their lives. And so I'd love um, intellectual uh, capacity on the question of how do we best measure personal transformation at an individual level? Things like subjective well-being and, um, and customer feedback to nonprofits and other measures at the sort of customer level, you know, approximate profit and loss in the social sector. So uh, those would be my two wish lists, right? Lots more research overall and then and then some help on the measurement side specifically. Well, John, let me ask you a question that came in uh, about the distinctions in need uh, for social entrepreneurship, how it might look different in a rural community than an urban community. And I wonder if there's anything that you've observed in the reentry space um, that that uh, is different in a rural than an urban setting. Uh, do you have comments on that? Is, is that a distinction? Yeah, you know, some of the places we've traveled across the country, um, uh, depending on where you are uh, in our world, I mean, the, the rural sections are just, uh, sectors are just as bad as or, or need more attention as the, you know, the, the inner city uh, uh, places. Uh, you know, there's a lot of rural areas across our country. It's just very uh, high poverty, uh, you know, um, uh, very drug infested. Uh, so I think a lot of attention needs to be really focused on our rural areas uh, as well. Right. Evan, do you have any comments on that? What you, the, how you're seeing efforts? Are they comparing, contrasting between the two? Yeah. Well, I'd start by saying that um, people are people and uh, the problems of poverty uh, for us uh, tend to be extremely consistent that it is really the absence of contribution. So as John gave, I think, great advice to our young college student, that the, the problem of poverty is almost always because an individual has not yet discovered their innate capabilities and mm -hmm. haven't figured out how to use those to create value for others yet. 
And so the consistent thing across urban, rural, you know, criminal justice, addiction, mental health issues, joblessness problems are almost always some combination of people not believing in themselves, often because nobody has believed in them, um, and then not figuring out how to discover talents that they can contribute to others. And so we're looking for entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs that are doing that. Certainly the local characteristics matter. And so it takes a different uh, type of social entrepreneur to help someone struggling with addiction in Appalachia than struggling with joblessness in, uh, in Dallas, Texas. And so we, uh, we want the local conditions to matter. But I think we, we probably overgeneralize when we make it about rural versus, versus um, uh, urban. And instead we should think about, you know, an entrepreneur has to, has to meet the demand of the customers in that area. So mm -hmm. you know, even everyone talks about that we want to avoid the McDonaldization of, of nonprofit work or poverty work. You know, McDonald's look different on the, you know, the outside of the restaurant looks different in Santa Fe, New Mexico than they do in New York City. And that's a good thing because those businesses, even if they've discovered something that customers want everywhere, they have to meet the unique needs of the customer mm -hmm. wherever they go. And so, you know, certainly though, the, the causes and problems of poverty are different in urban communities and rural communities often. The injustices, right? We often talk about poverty um, in different ways, but they're always structural, there's always cultural, and there's always sort of psychosocial or, or personal barriers that are keeping people in poverty. Um, you know, I think we need to unpack and disaggregate what are the, the causes of poverty in each of those areas um, if we're to find, you know, meaningful solutions to the unique iterations of it. Thank you. Very helpful. John, let me turn to you to ask a, a great question here about the generational dynamics of these challenges. Um, how have you seen uh, generational issues with incarceration and how are you seeing success in breaking that down? Oh, and that's a that's a great question. Um, I think that um, when you when you look at issues like poverty, when you look at issues like drug addictions, when you look at issues like gang affiliations or, or even prostitutions, if you take a look inside that family dynamic, those are things that are passed down from generation to generation to generation. And people who are growing up in that uh, uh, in that in that space may 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 uh, may be saying that you know I'm this way because my dad was gang affiliated and all of his brothers were gang affiliated, or I'm this way, I grew up addicted to drugs because I grew up around that. So, you know, the Bible calls it like generational curses that are being passed down. This is why it's so important, the work that we do, uh, to make sure that we can step in and provide the support to break those, those generational curses and show people a way to be able to live. You know, the thing that, that we've discovered uh, when working with people is that the majority of people they really want to change. They have no idea how to do it. So the only reference point that they have to live is what it is that they've been surrounded with. So when you introduce folks to new concepts and to help to create reference points up in here, that way they really want to go, you know, let me show you what that looks like. And when you get one person to take the lead, that's when you break those generational curses. And, and, and you know, as we like to say, like the little eyes are watching. You start moving in that direction, and this is how you uh, have an opportunity to reach out and touch the next generation of your family. That's great. 
Well, Evan, let me send the last audience question to you. And this is asking, what role does individual accountability and spiritual reflection play in effective anti-poverty efforts? Yeah, well, I think poverty is a really complex issue. People are facing all kinds of different barriers. Uh, some of those barriers are personal, uh, moral choices that individuals have made. And individual responsibility is important. Um, and so we should we should absolutely consider that. I think though for conservatives, and one of the reasons why conservatives, I I you know sort of maybe provocatively say, uh, have a tougher time right now claiming the mantle of being the anti-poverty um, advocates out there, is because too often the message has been just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and blaming those in poverty as having made poor moral choices. But for most individuals that find themselves in poverty in America. They find themselves in poverty because of they're, they're forced to go to a subpar school. They're there because their dad was in prison because you know one in three black men in America have a criminal record today and the incarceration rates are through the roof. Um, or war on poverty programs have, have broken down the family in low income communities and created sort of generational poverty in families. And so a lot of these problems are structural and policy driven. And, so the problems of poverty are complex. And if conservatives only answer to this problem is, this is about individual responsibility and moral choices of individuals, then it will never be the, the set of ideas or principles that can help uh, lead this country forward. It, it, the conservative movement, and I consider myself to be a classical liberal uh, more broadly, this sort of American idea needs to be that each and every person can tap into their gifts and talents and 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 rise it's, it's on the individual but that our belief is that we're all stronger when we include everyone in the progress of this country and we all dedicate ourselves to better ideas for how to solve and it's not just about government versus charity for example it's about whether or not our efforts as individuals in communities empower one another to be our best self so to me while I think individual accountability and responsibility is, is important, and we should make sure not to support policies that remove individual responsibility or, um, or undermine it, uh, ultimately, I think we should put our focus in uh, how do we build stronger communities together that help every person mm -hmm. run. Wonderful. Well, thank you uh, so much. This is a complex issue. That's why we've brought together this forum that brings uh, federal, state, and local voices together and people who are looking at it from perspectives on the ground and across the nation. And for that, we really thank you, John Ponder and Evan Feinberg. It's wonderful to see you, and I've enjoyed this conversation very much. Thanks for being with us. Likewise. Thank you. Well, I hope you are encouraged by hearing from these leaders. And another leader in this field of neighborhood enterprise is Bob Woodson, who's been a mentor to me and so many others. And last week I had the chance to catch up with him about some of the projects that he's been working on at the Woodson Center, uh, where he is the founder and CEO, uh, and uh, this past year at the projects that they've been working on. So please listen with me now to that conversation. Welcome, Bob, it's great to see you. Good seeing you, Jennifer. Great seeing you. Well, you have done great work over uh, many years and always emphasized that we need to be thinking about principles and practices when it comes to helping those in need. And you founded an organization almost 40 years ago now that's yes. now known as the Woodson Center, appropriately. 
And it's an organization that really emphasizes the joining of principles and practices. And of course, this is a theme that we're emphasizing in our anti-poverty forum this year. Can you tell us a little bit about why that joining of principles and practice is so important? Well, I spent all my professional life working on behalf of low-income people from within those communities, helping them to develop uh, strategies to address poverty and drugs internally. And what I encountered throughout that experience is that they kept running into policy barriers. For instance, public housing residents, if they took over the management of their complex and they lowered their costs and increased their, their income, that money was recaptured by the federal government. And so there are, are uh, obstacles like that, that I said, well, we must do more than just engage in constructive practice, but we nearly need to engage policy to at least get out of the way of, of these groups uh, on, a, on a negative side and positively, what can we do in policy to enhance uh, the, the acceptance and assistance to these groups? So that's why I work with Jack Kemp and others to uh, author seven amendments to the Housing Act that really removed the barriers, that gave the residents the right to manage, gave them a right to uh, employ discipline in their own ranks. And so these are the kinds of things that we were trying to marry policy with practice. That's great. And you've been so important in connecting those working across the country whether they're working to fight gang violence or drug addiction or helping uh, those formerly incarcerated to reenter society. Such great work you've done in empowering those engaged in neighborhood enterprise. And, and this year you've started a new project called 1776 Unites. Can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to start that and, and what the goals are for that? Yeah, last, last uh, August, 2019, the New York Times came out with 16, 19, that was a group of black journalists under Nicole Hannah-Jones came together to author a, a policy uh, paper. And it wanted to define America as defined by slavery. That's 1619 was the date that the first slaves arrived. And so what they tried to do is say, as a consequence, America should not be defined by 1776. Race was being used um, as the face of this, this bludgeoning of the nation's values, we thought it was appropriate for the messenger to also be Blacks. So we brought together a group called 1776 of scholars, of activists, and we are, have published essays, uh, curriculum. So we want to prevent the, the opposite uh, uh, to that, that, that we want to affirm of, of, of the country's values and so we have done this uh, through 1776. It's an organization under the umbrella of the Woodson Center that we brought together scholars and activists. Uh, and so we are not offering a counter debate, but a more inspirational and aspirational alternative narrative to confront what they're saying. We're sounding that note of inspiration. I hear you hearkening to what are known as the Woodson principles. And another one of those is resilience. Uh, and of course, this has been such a, uh, a challenging year in so many regards and resilience is, is something we wanna know more about. Can you tell us, this is, a, this is one of the principles that is featured in uh, the new book that you have coming out on December 14th, Lessons from the Least of These. Uh, we're pleased to be hosting a book event for you at that time on December 14th. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit more about the concept of resilience uh, what no, they, from watching and, and what we can learn from that? 
Yeah, I mean, what 1619 is trying to do is falsely portray the history of Black America as defined exclusively by slavery and, and Jim Crow. What it fails to mention is that a Black America was never defined by America's birth defect of slavery. That story must be told. But a Black America's history here is also defined by its resistance to slavery and, and Jim Crow. And that is, we have a history of resilience that people were able to thrive and to survive in spite of these obstacles. Uh, and we give examples of 20 Blacks who were born slaves who died millionaires. Two of them actually went back and purchased the plantation on which they were slaves. So this is just the real story of resilience uh, that I capture in, in my book, the uh, lessons from the least of these. Jennifer, I've taken my entire career and in 40 years, I have listened to, be, been guided by and by my grassroots leaders who as a consequence of their living experience, their lives extol the virtues of our founders by talking about how they have coped with these challenges and how they have built systems of resistance. And so what we say that what blacks need is not reparations, we need preparations. And that's what our grassroots leaders have done. And we were able to capture it in this book um, with, with identifying 10 principles that is the bedrock of their success and defines how they were able to achieve in the face of oppression and not succumb to it. Well, Bob Woodson, thank you so much uh, for your voice of aspiration, for reminding us of the ideals on which we stand and towards which we always strive. And thank you for your voice and, and your forthcoming book to that end. Thanks for joining me today. And thank you. Well, I hope you have been encouraged by listening to these leaders in social enterprise across our nation. And this is why we hold the Anti-Poverty Forum, to be able to highlight and showcase good work like this. This brings us to the end of our first session. I hope you'll join us again for session two, which will begin at 2 p.m. Eastern. On the screen, you'll see contact information for the participants in this session. And I again thank our presenters for joining me today. Thank you, audience, for joining us as well. We'll see you again at 2 p.m. Thank you.